Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's something up. One trolley Bravo, Lakeford in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now, let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? I'm fantastic. Another guest on the show today, one we've been excited to hear, talk to, and, and learn more from. We have Tammy Jo Schultz on the show today. Welcome, Tammy Jo. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, maybe most aviators might not know who you are, but we hope that everyone will get to learn a little bit more about you today. Um, if you're from the Texas area, you probably know you a little bit better because you're uh, quite an infamous Southwest pilot uh, on flight 1380 uh, there was a malfunction and we'll talk more about that later um, but we appreciate you taking time and joining the show and look forward to learning a lot from you today oh thank you i'm enjoy- i'm looking forward to it now i understand you are a retired southwest captain uh tell us a little bit about the beginning of your career though tell us how you found your way to aviation and uh i know some i know some things if you don't bring them up i'll ask some questions but tell us about how you got started in aviation yes um, but really, I, I like to say I didn't grow up around it. I grew up underneath it. And so uh, my family had a farm and ranch in southern New Mexico, and our land bordered the BLM and uh, government land for Holloman Air Force Base. So we would uh, get to have an air show every day uh, of the fighter lead training, the uh, dogfighting and our big hay barn was about the only man-made structure out there for miles. So they would use that as their ground reference point and mix it up overhead. And so that was really the, my intro to, to aviation. I, I watched it for a while and then realized, okay, somebody's in those cockpits. It might as well be me and started reading about it and, um, met my first aviation hero, Nate Saint, on the pages of Jungle Pilot and kind of saw how he, he got into aviation through serving, serving in, in um, the Army Air Corps. And, and I just decided, you know what, I, I would love to do that. I'd love to serve my country. I grew up in a very patriotic family. I think just it patriotism, I think, is kind of born out of a love of family, which produces a love of country. And so it was exciting to me to think about doing that. And uh, it would take me, you know, I think seven years from that point and seven recruiters to find my way into it. But it was through the Navy that I started flying. Nice. And uh, in the Navy, you flew some pretty fast aircraft, as as I see on your Wikipedia page and on your page. You were one of the first women to fly the F-A-18, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, then, you know, I, I feel like my history of trying to get into uh, flying is a good lesson in whenever you're told no, you, you obviously have to be. Uh, wise about is that an answer or is that an opinion but if it's an answer move on because the air force told me no three times they wouldn't even let me take the test the army said you are not a fit for us 
And the Navy recruiter said, sure, take test. And come to find out the Navy was the only branch that allowed women to fly tactical aircraft in tactical missions long before the combat exclusion policy was lifted. We didn't fly in combat squadrons, but um, it, you know, going through the Navy to get I went to the carrier and carrier called in two different aircraft. I did air to ground bombing, strafing, dogfighting, low levels, low levels information, uh, aerobatics, aerobatics information. I mean, all the things you do to get your wings in the Navy was pretty exciting. And then um, I taught for a couple of years. And this is where Wikipedia and sometimes things drift off is after I taught for two years, uh, I went into an aggressor squadron, an electronic aggressor squadron, and flew A7s. And uh, we studied air, Chinese, French, and Russian weapons and, and tactics. And then we, we simulated those against our own fleet, uh, from top gun students and squadrons to uh, destroyers and carrier groups. So I wasn't an instructor pilot there. I was a bogey. You know, I was a bad guy. And so that's how our that's how we prepare our our aviation and our ships uh, to go to, to go on cruise and, and meet the threats that are out there. So uh, when I was in a sevens was the time that Congress started looking at lifting the combat exclusion policy. And and there was no place in the Army or the Air Force that women were flying tactical aircraft. So our squadron and a couple of others had a lot of attention at that time since we were the only women that were flying tactical things. Our skipper sent us to uh, fly, to get A7 weapons qualified, which was something that we hadn't gotten when we went through the first time in training. And Pam and I went to El Centro, California in, on the last A7 weapons debt. And, and then about a year later, we transitioned into the F-18, which again, women hadn't done that before. And um, so it was, it was not necessarily a warm welcome uh, by the, the folks there. However, the aircraft was, was magical. Uh, I, I like to say it, it was like taming and organizing a thousand details into an economy of mind and motion. The F-18 was designed by pilots. The cockpit was designed by pilots, which was kind of a new step. Usually engineers uh, were who designed the cockpit, but they put some fighter and attack pilots in the same room, made them get along and design a strike fighter cockpit. So everything is where it should be and it does what you want it to do. Nice. So you mentioned the aircraft carrier. I'm always fascinated obviously by aircraft landings. I think anybody in aviation probably has been addicted to YouTube and watching people land on aircraft carriers. And and we teach short field landings today often in Cessna 172s and probably takes, you know, a Cessna even a thousand feet if the student's not really good at it. How how many times have you landed on an aircraft carrier? Well, um, I don't have the exact number. After I went in T2s and then I went in A4s, then I also instructed uh, carrier landings when I was a T2 instructor. So wow. um, 
But the, the funny thing, I mean, everybody who gets into the jet pipeline knows they're going to the carrier. I mean, it's what you dream about, really. Sometimes it's nightmares, sometimes it's dreams, you know. But um, the funny thing is, what you don't know is the first time you go, you're solo. I mean, as a student, you've never seen it before, and there's nobody in your backseat. Wow. No one wants to get hurt with you. <laughs> yeah, that was that was kind of fun. In fact, my parents, after my first carrier um, call, they told me, you know, could you just tell us when you get back? We do not want to know when you go. Just tell us when you get back. But um, you go out in a formation. So you've got an instructor that's leading the formation. So you certainly get uh, get to fly form on the way out. So you enter the pattern and come down when your, your signal is to, to get started. But, uh, but there's nobody in your back seat. And it, it really makes great sense because if there is somebody in your – well, the joke was that there's not enough money to pay anybody to be in your backseat your first trip. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. The, the truth was they wanted your decision loop very small and tight and quick. And so if you if you had somebody in your backseat, you might be tempted to think about what they're thinking about what you should be doing rather than you thinking about what you should be doing. And so I, I think there's truly some wisdom in that. Um, obviously that's, it works. Um, but, uh, it, it is, it is, is interesting because I think a lot of people just from the outside, what you don't realize is the angle of the deck, you know, the carrier's going forward and you get your cat shot, your catapult is off the front, which is straight ahead. And the ship usually, uh, they steam into, the wind to create wind over the deck uh, or they can go fast enough to create their own wind if there isn't but the angled deck is where you land so as you're coming in and it's about a 600 feet per minute uh constant rate of descent no flaring in the navy and um so we call it a <laughs> crash you know but they uh you've got to constantly be doing this little right for lineup right for lineup right for lineup um or else you can catch a wire. And as one of the students did when I was uh, strapped onto the catapult as an instructor, I was getting some kind of good deal traps and I trapped and gotten over to the catapult was um, under stress, ready to go. And I hear this, we've got you, do not eject. Mm. <laughs> and I'm thinking, You've got me, but I'm not even thinking about ejecting. So I look around, and and one of the students had had not, had I think uh, you know hadn't given that right for lineup tiny correction constantly, and so he'd gotten the wire, but gone over the edge. And uh, wow! But it it held on to him. I mean, there's just a T two dangling over the edge, and it took him a while to get about 45 minutes to get the crane out there, get him, get him back up on the deck but it's uh it's tricky in a number of areas but it's uh, quite frankly i feel like it's probably like everything else we do in aviation if you break it down understand it practice 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 anybody can do it and so you have a lot of jet time I, i'm assuming you have some piston time and 
uh, GA uh, is probably a part of your life in some way. I've seen some pictures of a twin behind you in a 206 maybe. How much, how much, I guess, piston time do you do nowadays, if any? Oh, well, I had just a little in an 02 in between the Navy and Southwest. I flew over forest fires for a summer. Uh, but I, we, uh, we owned a 177 for a couple of years. I didn't wind up flying the Cardinal very much because our son was learning to fly. So when we were in the Cardinal, Marshall was flying. And uh, what a great, what a great little aircraft. Um, we're, we have a Piper Malibu now. And I will say, I really enjoy flying that. Uh, so my piston experience is very limited, but growing. Uh, I do angel flights with my husband, and that's that's an organization that I would like to put out there for GA. If you have an airplane, and I think 250 hours or 500 hours, um, just look into that. It's such a great reason to start your engine. Uh, I know we all look for for a reason to get up there and fly, not only because it's fun, but because you need to. You need to keep your scan uh, oiled and and useful and uh, your aircraft will always run better if you keep it moving. Uh, Aircraft that sits still don't usually work real well. So both pilots and airplanes need to fly and it's a a charity that you volunteer as a pilot if you're not really sure about it after you look at it online, just call the local chapter up and go on an angel flight. Be a an, a an able-bodied assistant. We take people to and from their medical appointments, and we cut you know what would be an eight-hour journey for someone that has a weekly uh, chemotherapy or something like that into a, a two-hour flight. They can get there sometimes, get back on the same day. And it changes lives because, you know, some of these from babies to older, older people would have to leave their, their, their family and friends have the expense of a, an apartment or a hotel while they're going through these medical procedures. And uh, so it's just a great reason to get airborne and then take a friend with you help somebody get to their appointment or get home and then go have your hundred dollar hamburger. And you've, uh, you've had a great reason to, to launch. And we, we've talked about and do some other similar organizations. And, and I think Wally references it quite often that he gets so much more out of it than they're getting out of that flight because of, of the joy it brings him. And, and it's not really a sacrifice for us aviators, maybe a little bit of av gas, but uh, it is what you say. It is a great experience for both, passenger and pilot for sure yeah definitely so tammy joe uh obviously april i get what april 2018 was a big big month and southwest flight 1380 is one that you'll never forget and many others will never forget um can you can you share a little bit about that day and talk us through I mean, it, it's all the training you talked about made you ready for that. But when it happens in a blink of an eye, the way it did, I guess just talk us aviators through what 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 should we be prepared for when we're we're faced with a situation that's as tough as that. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back just a moment to my time 
in the Navy as an instructor in T2s. And a, a big lesson I learned on the ground that absolutely played into that day uh, in the air. And that is, I had a change of command, had a, a skipper that said, I will not have a woman teaching guns in my aircraft, in my squadron, very publicly uh, put me down about, you know, being a woman in his squadron and sent me to teach out of control flight, which is something nobody liked to do even their one flight of. And I was destined to become the, the, the one of the instructors of it for a year. And I, I really took to heart the fact that I just can't let an offense get in the way of an opportunity. And uh, truthfully, I don't think that was a Tammy Joe wisdom, but it's something that God <laughs> impressed upon me right. and dug in and did out of control flight and looked into ways to help my students not, you know, introduce me to their breakfast every flight and things like that. And and the aerodynamics involved. And so that year really played into the day that um, we lost an engine at 32,600 feet outside of uh, Pennsylvania. And I, I never want to speak of Southwest Flight 1380 without speaking of the crew because aviation is never a solo sport. And in commercial aviation, it is a very big team sport. So I was the captain on 1380, but I certainly wasn't alone. I had an incredible crew. Darren Elliser was my first officer, Catherine Sandoval, Shanique Mallory, and Rachel Fernheimer, courageous and compassionate flight attendants. And then throughout the flight, there were passengers that stood up, Tim McGinty, Andrew Needham, Peggy Phillips. Uh, begins the list, but there were others that did too. So um, that day we just had one of those uh, wonderful starts to the day, but 20 minutes in, we had an explosion on the captain's side. It felt like we were T-boned by a Mack truck. Darren and I on the ground later both thought we had been struck by another aircraft. I mean, we just were thrown sideways, pitched over in a dive, and did a snap roll to the left. Darren and I both caught it going through 40-something degrees and uh, carefully brought it uh, back wings level and, and used the rudders uh, to uh, straighten out the aircraft into balanced flight. <clears throat> There's a lot of things that happened. I would, I would have to say, you know, the book would probably be the best way to get the full uh, measure of what was dealt with that day. But, you know, the explosion tore out chunks of the leading edge of the wing, some fuselage, some of the tail, leading edge of the tail. <clears throat> and um, it severed hydraulic lines and fuel lines. The worst thing that it did was uh, damage some windows, one of which uh, blew out. And so we had a, uh, smoke in the cockpit as well as condensation uh, a cloud of condensation we had uh, a shuddering that just wouldn't allow us to focus our eyes on anything until we got the nose pulled up and slowed down just a little bit um, rapid depressurization we we practice those which is good because that gives you muscle memory and and mental memory to to do those procedures but one of the things you don't think about is the 
the ice pick pains in your ears that happen kind of long before in a, in the adrenaline span of thinking, which really uh, it, it kind of, it seems to slow down time, but obviously it can't do that. It just spins up your mind. But um, I felt like that happened a long time before we realized, ah, we're not being able to breathe either. So there was just that, um, that kind of moment in time, not, not being able to communicate because of the roar and, uh, see really because of the shuddering breathe and um, I think that was a a uh, <clears throat> a pretty big startle point for everyone once we got uh, control of the aircraft and again that out of control flight which I taught for years uh, for a year I I think that was um, a major player in in giving me the natural reactions. Darren also very extraordinary gentleman and aviator. So we didn't fight on the controls about anything. We always made sure that there was a positive um, knowledge of who was in control. Because when that happened, you both grabbed the controls. Um, the one thing I would love to encourage aviators about is, I say one thing, there's a short list um, of aviation takeaways. And that would be, um, you know, read your safety or listen to your, your, watch your safety videos. Just, there are so many true stories that kind of clicked into my mind on the way down that helped make some really snap decisions uh, and maybe hard decisions easy because I'd already seen it played out or heard it played out in other flights. Um, such as, you know, we had about seven checklists, uh, emergency checklists to do on our way down. And uh, we had our hands full. ATC was kind of chatty and had us switching things a lot. I think we we're going through different sectors kind of quickly. And um, I thought about that Swiss air flight that got wrapped up in checklists and ran out of fuel orbiting over an airport and crashed and killed everyone. Mm -hmm. And so just remembering, you know, keep your situational awareness and priorities will shift, but the main priority is landing. It, it, it always is. Right, right. And um, so that and hand flying, um, as we get more sophisticated aircraft and tighter avenues of acceptance um, in and out of airports and busy places, it's real easy to just, get all the parameters set, put the autopilot on and monitor. But at Southwest, we, you know, we, we hand fly quite a bit just because we didn't start with a lot of those uh, bells and whistles. And, and because we do a lot of takeoff and landings, we tend to be pilots that like to fly. And so um, hand flying, you know, that was definitely, there was just hand flying to be done from that point to the ground. And, having a feel for the aircraft is it can only be gained through hand flying. You can't feel it through autopilot or monitoring. So that was, that, that played a big part. Uh, the takeaways, aviation and people wise, uh, as soon as we were squared away enough that we knew the aircraft was in control, who was in control, we were breathing uh, oxygen. I made a PA in the back, not, really knowing if they'd hear because the roar was still there, just not quite as 
as loud. But uh, I, I made a quick PA to tell tell the passengers uh, we're not going down. We're going into Philly, and got back to flying with Darren and. But communicating your destination, communicating something. Um, we we're pretty busy, so my communication was pretty brief, but at least it let them know we're still in control of the cockpit, we have a plan, and it changed so much, I would say, uh, not just for Darren and I to have a plan and start problem solving backwards to where we were, but also for the flight attendants. They were buckled up. They unbuckled, went through a really rough aisle uh, to help people with their oxygen masks and also reassure them uh, because people were really thinking this was their last flight. And um, that knowledge that we we do have a destination, uh, even though it's a rough ride, and the I feel like the flight attendants actions also inspired other people. Um, there were passengers that got up, some maybe before, but others after seeing the flight attendants and realizing, okay, you know, let's see what I can do to help. And there was definitely opportunity to help in the back. And um, so that element of hope, it doesn't have to change your circumstances, but you need to share it because it does change you. And um and habits. I would say that was a big learning uh, point because whatever you groom your habits to be on a good day, that's what they will. Your instincts will be that on a bad day. And you want to, you have this generous gift of choice. So uh, be really conscious of grooming those good habits. Um, And so that I would say without going into a lot of detail was uh, some of the wrap up from flight 1380. And so I guess powering that back into a daily life at maybe this flight school and people are practicing and learning every day, you know, we, we probably take unusual attitudes a little bit for what they are. And it's a stage of a check ride that we have to get through and do, and probably most don't like it, but it does sound like that, that did save you and maybe others that day being able to control an aircraft that was starting to take control and, and not give it back to you. Um, I guess the book, by the way, is Nerves of Steel, uh, available just about anywhere you can buy books in about any format, Audible, uh, to, to paperback to hardback. Um, it's a crazy story. I have a million little questions, but I will save some of them. Um, Wally, you're, you're on duty today later on. You're wearing a captain's uniform right now. What – what goes through your mind when you hear somebody tell a story like that? I guess guess what I think of is is uh, one thing I always bring up in my check rides is we talk. I talk. You know, one of my big things is is fuel um, because we've we determined that forty seven percent of general aviation accidents have some sort of a fuel element to them, and so I, I I'll talk to my applicant and I'll say out of those forty seven percent of the accidents. What percentage of those people do you think woke up in the morning and were getting dressed and, and thought, hey, I think I'll go run an airplane out of fuel today? And, um, of course, the, the answer is zero. And so, uh, I, you know, as I go to work, um, I'm, I'm usually thinking that the stress on my mind is where I'm going to dinner 
in in my layover city or or uh, geez, I'm I'm getting there late. Is anything going to be open? Am I going to have to use Uber Eats or am I going to have to use room service? Whatever. And you know, you never think, um, you never think, boy, what if that left engine explodes on me today? And but you got to be ready for that. And and that's what I commend you for is that. Um, um, boy, yeah, I, I, you are probably thinking about your, your layover or, or where you're going for dinner when you got to wherever you're going and then boom, uh, you know, and you just wonder, um, uh, boy, how long did it take you to process what actually happened or, you know, and, and, you know, we've all seen the movie Sully where, you know, they really didn't know what happened for a while and it took a while. And, um, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to impart on my applicants is, um, expect the unexpected cause you just never know. Well, I've listened to, sorry, I'll say one last thing to that too. You know, I've listened to the tape dozens of times before I ever even started this podcast and you're so calm, uh, there, you can tell there's confusion is not the right word. You didn't have all the information and, and still you're, you're calm. ATC really did seem like they were asking a lot of information or changing radio stations channels a lot for you. But, uh, I guess to, to Wally's point too, the fact that you were pretty calm, uh, says an awful lot as well. Well, I, I, um, I will say we didn't know all the things that happened all we knew was there's an explosion obviously we're damaged because we have a rapid d and we're shuddering in a way that it it was one of those odd things that it wasn't a repetitive shutter it changed constantly but that was because of the tearing of cowling and and the tearing of the damage so um treating symptoms you know sometimes you don't get the luxury of going oh like in a simulator, a lot of times, you know, something happens, you, you interpret the symptoms and you get the checklist out. And that's, you know, that's the, the rhythm you get into. And it's, it's a wonderful rhythm, but there are things that happen that don't fit any of that. So right. yeah, having that, that sense of aviate, navigate, communicate, and um, there were times when we just got to aviate, aviate, aviate. And um, so I think, you know, I love, uh, even though I, I never enjoyed my check rides. Well, I enjoyed some of the people I had my check rides with, but getting ready for them was one of those great uh, kind of getting fit for a track meet kind of times aviation wise. So I don't know, uh, in general aviation for the Malibu, we do have a yearly training. And so that still gives me that rhythm of getting into the books, going through the emergency procedures, thoroughly looking into the systems, diagrams, things like that. But if you don't have that for your aircraft, make a, put a, put a pin in your year and make yourself your own, uh, you know, your own check ride, just because it's such a good time to think through those things while you're on the ground, while you have time to question, why would you do that? Why is this? And where does that, you know, that alternator or that fuel valve or whatever, 
so that when things happen rapidly and without explanation, you have it. I will say adrenaline is is pretty amazing at how well you can go back through that mental file with humidity and come up with, you know, the the ideas. You, you won't have any epiphanies. You won't do things that you haven't prepared for. But what you have prepared for, it'll be there. You, but it takes time on the ground. Yeah. We, I, I've never been, well, I guess when I started flying, which has only been about six years, believe it or not. Uh, I soloed six years ago yesterday, actually. Um, the I was never really comfortable. I was always a little bit nervous in the aircraft later in life. And I, I get nervous when a seatbelt's outside the door clapping on the, the fuselage, much less something that explodes. Um, and we've talked about on this show, I had an air miss where the ATC here landed a helicopter in front of me at, at right at rotation, which I really am shocked to still be here today myself. I had a hard time getting back in the aircraft. I imagine there was some some hesitation nerves i'm not sure what that is you're a pro i'm not a pro what was it like to fly again after that incident actually there wasn't i i asked to they you know they gave us as much time off as we wanted and i asked to come back three and a half weeks later um i don't know if it's because that wasn't the first time things had gone wrong in a cockpit for me and um so uh, I knew it, to me, it was a lot like, you know, getting in your car when you have a fender bender or even worse, uh, you still need to get in your car and continue life. And so quite frankly, it was, it was kind of nice to get in an aircraft. And I think I picked up a trip that went down to Cabo and back and, I remember my first officer, he was fairly new and he's kind of quiet. And um, I, I realized, you know, he was probably all I could think about is what happened to this lady the last time she flew. Mm-hmm. And I finally told him, you know what? It's like lightning. It can't happen twice. It probably won't happen twice. And we had a good laugh and went on. Um, I think part of it is just the like I said, the amount of years that I'd been doing it and things hadn't uh, gone sideways. And then having some times in the aircraft, a couple of times in the aircrafts that I had flown where I wasn't really sure it was going to turn out with uh, me and the airplane landing together. <laughs> so, there you, go. Uh, you know, that uh, I wouldn't recommend, you know, that, that, um, you know, that path, uh, I, I would hope everything would always work, but it, it wound up not being something that I dreaded. And honestly, I give, I give the Lord credit for that, for just helping me have a, a perspective that, um, a healthy perspective, I think. Right. All right. So as a, as a female, as a woman in aviation, um, you broke a lot of boundaries early on in the Navy. Um, and it still seems like, as a fly school owner, I, I have I, I do everything I can to introduce diversity here. But we still have ten white males to one white girl, and you know it's just it's still a, a it's an unfair battle. It feels like 
for females that want to get into aviation. And I, while I talked to a few, Wally's got two daughters that are going to be professional pilots. What do you recommend for all of us aviators to do to try and help both boys and girls, men and women, to introduce, get them introduced to aviation? Well, uh, first of all, I would like to say, you know, the idea that white males are the enemy is, is a false one. I had so many champions that uh, fit that category. And just like a bad attitude can appear in anybody, no matter their shape or form, um, it just happened to be that, you know, I, I was, uh, I think I was the, the lone female in the first four squadrons that I was in. So uh, about one female pilot came through Corpus Christi Navy flight training and the T2 and A4s a year. And I think as the numbers increase, you know, the attitudes will dismantle a little bit. Um, I know that flying right now, uh, whenever my husband and I, we just flew our Piper Malibu up to Alaska and back. And even when I was the one landing and they would park me, they would see that I was the one that just landed in Sitka, for example, Sitka, Alaska. They always go up to my husband to ask how much fuel he wants and when he's headed out again. <laughs> and I always just kind of shake my head and go on and get a drink or something. I think I'm not going to argue about that. But it does get frustrating. Um, the one thing I would say is ladies have patience, but um, draw your line. You know, there are, as long as, as we know our stuff and and quite frankly, you do have to know what your rights are to have them. So be be smart about it. And gentlemen, just like Wally was there to help navigate his daughters through this this uh, aviation world, if if the gentleman in in aviation would come alongside, not be just a mentor, but be a sponsor so that when they're not in the room, when they're not in the hangar, um, there's, there's still either nice things said or not. The not nice things are not. Uh, just gentlemen being gentlemen would, would take care of a lot of that problems. And ladies have to remain ladies if we want men to act like men. But um, it, it, it's, I feel like it's just, one of those things that the recruitment of STEM students has unwittingly narrowed out quite a bit of the female population because women aren't traditionally drawn to STEM studies. And so that makes them think, well, then I'm out of that aviation opportunity. And realizing that really arts so put A in STEAM and make or STEM and make it STEAM and, and helping the ladies and gentlemen, but especially ladies, know that it you don't have to study aviation or math or science to to be a pilot and to be a successful pilot, you know, whether it's for your own enjoyment in GA flying or on through professional flying. 
you talked about some of the work you're doing around this to try and help the aviation community. And, and one thought that I, what, what made me become an aviator was a neighbor who took time to go to a Starbucks and sit down and have that two hour long conversation and answered the same questions that he or he had been asked thousands of times probably. And I'd love to have that conversation today and I'll do it over and over and over again to, to be able to try and pay that forward. It's almost like if we could just have a 1-800 number for people to call in and have that conversation it would change many people's lives because there really is this oddity that if you don't know where to start, it's really hard to start. But once you start, we all jump in and help anyone be successful. So there's there's something to that that starting mechanism that if we could all fix it, open our doors, invite more people in, have those conversations, I think we could we could change the future of aviation together, as corny as that might sound. I agree. And one of the things that I put on my website, captainschultz.com, is a drop-down menu with some some uh, ideas of where to go for scholarships or a free ride and free ground school and the first lesson free. And I'll, I'll be expanding on those as, as we flesh them out, but there's re- no reason for somebody to not at least get introduced to it to know whether it interests them or not. No so they, the 99s, the uh, women in aviation are just three to start with, but there's, there are a number and, and uh, the board that I'm on, we're working on making that list very easy to find. And hopefully I'll have that on my website soon, just a, a page of links to go to. And hopefully everyone listens to the show somewhat soon, but there is a Girls in Aviation Day, uh, I believe it's July 29th uh, at uh, Ellington Field here in town, and there's all kinds of opportunities for, for boys and girls. It's a it's women in aviation sponsored event, but boys and girls are all welcome to come to that event and uh, be introduced to aviation, hopefully not for the first time, but uh, there's a museum, there's all kinds of good stuff down there, so if you're listening to this show and that hasn't happened, go to that event, but Look at look at womeninaviation.com or .org, I believe, and you can find all kinds of events all over the country to get involved with aviation. Well, Tammy Joe, it's been a fun time talking to you. Anything to, to wrap up with? You, you mentioned your website, Captain Schultz. That's with an S, ends in an S.com. Um, the book is Nerves of Steel, anywhere you buy your books. Anything else you want to close with, Tammy Joe? Oh, you know, I would like to give a nod to um, the Air Race Classic by the 99s. They did a derby style this year, which is the first time they've ever done that, which meant you could map out your own five legs close by, grab some friends. And uh, Piper Aircraft was generous and sponsored our team. Elise Wheelock, who is their demo pilot, brought an archer up and we did uh Olga Custodio was on the team as well, and we did a, uh, a route locally. It was so much fun, and it really dusts off your uh, your cobwebs on how to use your either ForeFlight, Garmin Pilot, or whatever you're using on your iPad. And uh, I don't think I've done math so so much math in the last 30 years is what I did in that five legs. <laughs> Yeah, no dispatcher on that trip, I'm assuming, and uh, it looked like a lot of fun. The pictures were great of you, and I assume that Archer cockpit was just a little bit smaller than a Southwest cockpit. I know. I got some I got some funny comments about 
could that really carry all three of you? And, and uh, I said, it's not a speed race. It's a navigational race. That's right. Archer's got a pretty good usable load. It, it, it'll handle three, three adults just fine. Wally, anything to close? No, Tammy, thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed getting to talk to you and get to meet you just a little bit. And um, hopefully we can do this some more. That would be fun. I feel like we just got started. We have yeah, to talk absolutely. to Aztec New Mexico next time. We'll do that. We'll, we will, we'll come up there and see you and my twin. As always, fly safe and stay behind the prop. Thanks, Tammy Joe. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe.